You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers Centre, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Alison Tate is a freelance writer, blogger, and author of the best-selling series The Mapmaker Chronicles. She has more than 20 years' professional writing experience. Each week, they explore the world of writing, publishing, and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more. With students enrolling from all over the world, you can find out more about the Australian Writer Centre at writercentre.com.au. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 211 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo, and I'm here with Alison Tate. How are you, Al? I'm, I'm pretty good, actually. Yes, Thanks, you've Val. been like, I'm on back. plane trains and automobiles and going to exotic locations, and you've been speaking at the Singapore Writers' Festival. I want to hear all about it. Go. Oh, yes. <laughs> okay. I wasn't ready for my recount of what I did on my holidays. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like you've just given me a school assignment. Um, well, look, I had a wonderful time and the Singapore Writers' Festival was fantastic and the organisers were terrific. Um, my sessions went incredibly well. My first session was a little bit confronting because it was at quarter to eight. So I got in um, sort of Thursday night and then at quarter to eight the following morning. So they picked me up at 6.45 a.m., like hello morning. And um, mm. I then went to a school, a primary school, and then, you know, wheeled out my my stuff for um, 100 uh, primary school students, grade six students. Wow. Um, which was an interesting thing, you know, because um, you – you you kind of like when I guess when you're used to going to Australian schools, you have a certain expectation of what your audience will be like and how your audience will respond. And mm. you know you've got your jokes and you've got your whatever that you do. <laughs> um, I'm very funny, like really, honestly, <laughs> I'm fantastic. Um, and and then you go, you know, it, it's a it's a it's a different culture. And and you, I'm sort of there. Mm. And they said to me, I was fortunately I was warned by other Australian authors who've been that, you know, your sessions are not as interactive because um, mm. in Singapore, you know, putting your hand up to ask a question or to throw an answer out is, is not what's done. Like they're very polite, very quiet students. Yes. Um, but it's very disconcerting from the presenter's perspective. So I really had to work quite hard because I had to ask myself the questions and answer them as I went sort of thing to mm -hmm. make sure that they got all the information and all the details that I like to, to share. But it was it went really well. The, t the teachers and the, the uh, Singapore Writers' Festival reps and stuff were all like, that was so great. And I was like, really? Okay. <laughs> um, you know, I did the usual thing that children's authors do have up their sleeve, which was bribery. So I, <laughs> well, you know, seriously, you've got to be prepared. So I handed out bookmarks. Oh, yes. I handed out bookmarks to anyone who asked a question. So oh, that's a good they idea. were all like, oh, they were so engaged and so interactive. I'm thinking, wow, that was the quietest session I've ever done. Um, <laughs> and they're like, wow, they were so engaged and so interactive. And I'm like, it's all down to the bookmarks. I've got nothing. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So how many days were you in Singapore and what else did you do apart from speak at the school? Oh, okay. So I was there for um, four days in total. It was kind of a whirlwind visit and it's very strange when you go for like, you know, I don't go anywhere much. I'm just sort of here with my dog. So mm. to find myself 
you know, in Singapore and doing all those things was um, was really quite funny. But, you know, the great thing about it was that it just reminded me, mm. it was really good for my confidence because it just mm. reminded me that, you know, it, it was outside my comfort zone and but it went really well and I am a perfectly capable functioning adult author, you know, who can do this stuff. And I think it's yes. really important to remind yourself of that stuff sometimes because you do get yourself into a bit of a rut and you get yourself into a bit of a um, of a routine and stepping outside that routine can feel quite big. Um, but at the end of the day, you sort of go and you do and it all goes really well and then you're very happy with yourself. Trust me, that, I, that was my experience anyway. Um, so I did a session on the – so the fr- on Friday I had the session at the school and then I – I was so lucky. I got to spend the rest of the day pretty much just walking around, you know, soaking it all in, going – I walked so many kilometres. I mean, it was hilarious. Did you, have a, did you have a Singapore sling at Raffles? Uh, no, because I did that last time. I instead had a okay. home – I had a craft beer at the Ooh. Boat Quay. Yes, Ooh, I was looking wow. at the Singapore River. Yeah, okay. it was really quite fabulous. Um, so um, – but it was just great to kind of, you know – walk and look and observe and and take things in and mm. I took photos of the strangest things like little details that um that I found really interesting and um yeah I really I've just really enjoyed the the time particularly when you're on your own because you can really just you know mm. suck it all up which I did um and then Friday night I had the festival director's dinner which was hilarious oh. because it was at an, an all-you-can-eat buffet oh right yes nice <laughs> very glamorous that's hilarious um, was it at a all-you-can-eat buffet at a fancy place or yeah it was at a fancy place but it was still mm-hmm. all-you-can-eat buffet I've got to tell you the hotel mm-hmm. breakfast I stayed at the Fullerton Hotel I love that hotel love 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 that hotel. oh it's so beautiful this big old-fashioned gorgeous building and they mm-hmm. had it all decorated out for Christmas so it was like being in fairyland and they yes. had piano music and it was all terribly glamorous. Um, yes. But the breakfasts, oh, oh, yeah. just astonishing. You could, yeah. I mean, pretty much have a roast dinner for breakfast if you wanted to. Like there was that much gear on, on offer. I spent yeah. about an hour having breakfast on on Saturday morning <laughs> just because I could. Um, and then I had a 90-minute workshop, which was all about, you know, finding your writing superpower. And it was in this gorgeous old building that is now they use it as a music centre. So I was up on stage with the drum kit and the guitars. I felt very cool. Um, and that was for 30 very keen writers. So that session was really good. It went really, really well. I was very happy with it. Um, and then on Sunday I was on a panel about encouraging creativity and kids um mm. and they, they it was really well done it was very well organized um our moderator Andrea Lamb was terrific and it was just this extraordinary um you know group of people that I I, I was on with a um an author a picture book author and illustrator from Colombia and mm. an illustrator from Israel and so we had this fantastic you know, discussion about how things were in different countries. And, of course, they came from a very visual perspective and, you know, I had to stand up. They they had PowerPoint presentations and Mm. then I got up to do my intro bit and I was all like, well, you know, I'm a writer and (laughs) I'm going to talk to you because that's what I do. Um, So apart from from being like participating in this in the sessions and talking to people did you have a chance to and I'm sure they got a lot out of your sessions but did you have a chance to attend some sessions and soak in some of that 
Not really, unfortunately. Like I, it was um, because I was very, very busy around the, like you, you sort of think, oh, I've got a one hour session or a one and a half hour session. But doing that takes about four hours by the time you sort of get right. there and do all the things that you needed to do and talk to people. And um, mm. I spent a bit of time with the two people that were on my on my panel with me. Um, so, um, and the more popular sessions, there were some great sessions that were on, they were fully booked out. So it was um, some of the stuff I would have quite liked to have gone to, um, I couldn't get into, which was disappointing. But look, it's, mm. you know, I, I think just being there and um, talking to different writers, because of course, at the festival dinner, I was talking to writers from Malaysia and write, a lot of um, mm. Asian-based writers. Um, and, you know, so it, I got a lot out of those conversations. Just you know, it's like I always say: you go to writers' festivals. It's not just about what happens on stage; it's about talking to the person next to you. Oh, definitely. And, and I actually got an enormous amount out of talking to the other presenters. So I felt, yes. um, yeah, I felt really good. It's very inspiring just to kind of be in that atmosphere. It was great. And of course, one of the things is. Um, with writers' festivals in that region, obviously there's the Singapore Writers' Festival, but there's the uh, very famous Ubud Writers' yes. and Readers' Festival. And, uh, and you know, that's always very popular. But for me, I would choose the Singapore Writers' Festival um, every single time for one simple reason. Okay. Want to know what it is? I, of course I do. <laughs> Air conditioning. Oh. <laughs> so true. Like the Ubud one, very exotic, very lovely, um, but I can't handle the heat. I just love the fact that in Singapore you're sitting in these absolutely beautiful, comfortable, um, you know, thoroughly pleasant, sometimes uh, stunning air-conditioned buildings, correct? Well, it's yes. I have to say that air-conditioning, you know, turned up to frigid is something that, that Singapore <laughs> does extremely well. It's, um, yeah, because I remember we were discussing before I left, I was like, oh, what do I pack? You know, what do I wear sort of thing? And you were yeah. like, take a jacket. <laughs> I'm like, Yes. <laughs> yeah. And you're like, take a jacket. You will need one. And you were so right. Like I really, yeah. it would have been super cold in those booties. But they, I, one of the things that I found fascinating, I was looking down, and this is something I took a photo of, I was looking down a street um, of the sort of in, in one of the older parts of town at the back of all these old sort of boathouses and stuff and the air conditioning units, like the – I just – it was extraordinary, the number of air conditioning units yeah. tacked onto the back of this building. It was um, – so this is the kind of stuff I notice, air conditioning units. Anywho. Because they're important. They're important. Anyway, I want to give um, – so it's glad I'm glad to have you back, Al. Yeah, I'm um, glad to have And I want to give a big shout-out to our um, listener group on Facebook. If you haven't yet joined <laughs> – our listener community on Facebook. Just search for So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community and join. We'd love to have you in there. So many fantastic conversations from so many people from so many different places. At the moment, the hot topic, of course, is NaNoWriMo because we are right in the middle of National Novel Writing Month. Now, I have to admit that I decided in October that I wouldn't participate in NaNoWriMo and that's largely because I was travelling, you know, like you. So I was overseas and I was really immersed in this conference. I was, you know, participating and facilitating part of this conference and I thought I'm not going to have the time, right, for to write 1,667 words a day mm. for NaNoWriMo and I wasn't going to be able to commit to it. But now, 
Al. I'm mm. kind of suffering from an affliction. Okay. A bit. It's like a. It's like a disease. Do you know? What, right. Do you want to know what it's called? Regret. FOMO RIMO. FOMO. You're feeling like missing out, aren't you? FOMO mm. RIMO. I like it. Hashtag. Hashtag FOMO RIMO. But here's the irony, okay? So even though for for like about the first 12 days in November I was really busy and I was overseas, I reckon in the last five days I've probably written 14,000 words. So irony. Irony. You are hilarious. <laughs> Ridiculous. So hashtag FOMO, FOMO RIMO. Yeah, well, I think it must be. And I thought at, at first I was in denial and I thought, stuff it, I'm not going to do NaNoWriMo, although now I'm suffering fo- from FOMO RIMO. And I thought instead I'm going to do um, NaNoWriMo. No, 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 treadmill mo. Because I crazy. <laughs> See, I ate my body weight in food when I was in Hawaii and I just mm-hmm. came back feeling so, you know, full <laughs> and and um, so uh, unfit. I hired a treadmill and decided, okay, I might not write 1,667 words a day, but I can try and do, you know, maybe 4Ks of running a day or something like that. So... Um, I, I convinced myself into thinking I'll do nano treadmill mo instead, but, but as it's turned out uh, to, to avoid, to, no, to, to, to procrastinate over going on the treadmill, I'm now riding more than I ever have. Wow. Val, you, you are astonishing. <laughs> I'm not quite sure what else to say here. So that's all I can say. I got nothing. Maybe we'll just move on. Let's move on before you come up with some other MIMO. <laughs> well, speaking of NaNoWriMo, there was an interesting article in The Independent in the UK about mm. NaNoWriMo and it features one of our podcast listeners and our, our lovely friend Anna Spargo ryan from Melbourne who, of Yay. course, is author of The Golf and The Paper House, um, both published by Picador. And she started both of her books during NaNoWriMo. So, yes. you know, if it, and, and I know that she is writing another one as we speak. Her next one. Because of NaNoWriMo. Right. Well, there you w- go. One. Yes, she's writing a, a thing, as she likes to call them. So I've you got might this thing. think, I've got this thing. Got you this might thing. think, you know, is this going anywhere? But uh, Anna is certainly an example of somebody who. Um, managed to move her NaNoWriMo efforts into the real world. Lisa Heidke has written a couple of books that she started in NaNoWriMo and moved that into the real world. Which one of yours started in NaNoWriMo, Al? Uh, A couple of my Mapmaker Chronicles books started in NaNoWriMo, a couple of various ones. I I generally do. This is the first year I haven't done it for, I don't know, five, six years I just uh, I couldn't get my head around it this year. So I, I, yes. I think it's one of those things that you, like I, I wanted to and part of me thought I should be doing this anyway and I just realised you've got to know yourself and I just realised that it was probably going to be the straw that broke the camel's back for me. So I just decided that I needed to, you know, focus on other things at the moment. Do you um, have FOMO-RIMO? 
You know, I don't. And the other interesting thing about it is that when you're in the middle of NaNoWriMo, um, then you feel like the entire world is doing NaNoWriMo, yeah. but I'm actually not doing it this year. And I I feel strangely removed from the whole thing. Like I'm not, as pa- apart from the fact that I'm seeing obviously articles about it and people in our podcast community and stuff talking about it, I'm not seeing it, like it's not in my Twitter feed as much as I would have thought it would be. And yeah, I don't know if I'm just glossing over it, maybe because I, you I don't want to have FOMO, maybe. FOMO I think Rimo. you are, because I do have FOMO, Rimo, I'm seeing it everywhere. Maybe yeah. I'm just, you know, just I'm trying to bliss. I'm in denial. in denial. Yeah, that's probably right. right. I, I one thing I would like to say about Anna's story, however, in mm. this um in the independent here, is she talks about the fact she she says, My first novel, The Paper House, which is a beautiful book, um, gratefully sold only a few months after NaNoWriMo had finished, but it needed a lot of extra work. Two years of editing with my publisher. Two years. Wow. So I think it's Limited. worth remembering that you know, it's a, an awesome thing to get a draft down in NaNoWriMo, but there's going to be more work afterwards. But then mm-hmm. her second novel, The Gulf, she says really is essentially the draft I wrote for NaNo with a couple of chapters moved around. That's not because it's half finished or terrible, but testament to how much I learned the first time. And I think mm-hmm. that's really important as well, because I think um, that the first, you know, professional structural edit that you ever do on a novel is always going to be the most confronting thing that you ever do in your life as far as your writing is concerned. But the amount that you learn from that process and how that will like subconsciously apply to your next book is extraordinary. I I, I remember myself, you know, the first structural I edit, edit I did being so confronting. But by the time I got to writing um, the Mapmaker Chronicles, you know, in NaNoWriMo, which I did, um, the first book, what you see in that first, uh, in the first book that's published is essentially how it came out, except mm-hmm. that there's one scene missing from the middle. I took out an right. entire scene in the middle, but the actual structure of it and the actual, you know, is, is not that different. And I think that it is, you do learn, you know, so I guess what I'm trying to say is, the thing that you write in nano is probably not going to be your finished book, but if you yeah. embrace the editing process and learn as much of it as you can, then the next time you do something like that, you'll be amazed by how much you've learned, what the sort yeah. of improvement in your first draft is going to be. So yeah, yeah there's that. Okay. That's all I had to and say. It's, and it's interesting, even though I'm not officially doing nano, I'm doing FOMO, um, uh, because of the what feels like this need to get as many words on paper or in the keyboard um, as possible. I'm not going back and um, angsting over every word. I'm not going back and, um, you know, editing it to the nth degree. I'm just going blur. So, and I find that um, is just a really useful way to just get stuff done because, like I said, I'm writing more than I thought. I even would even consider, you know, so. So do you normally um, edit as you go? I can't help myself. Like, you know, you've not, not edit so much, but you do reread and you do tinker, you do, you know, tweak, especially if you, if you got, you know, what you wrote the day before, Um, you've got to reread. So no, you don't edit like properly edit, but Mm. you, sometimes you can't help yourself, you know, fix things here and there because, you just can't. Well, that's me anyway. 
But anyway, let's move on to something else. Uh, our friend Pamela brought the brought me um, to the attention of bookperk.com, which oh. is actually by HarperCollins, but when the Australian version is called bookbliss.com.au. Okay. So bookperk's the American version. Bookbliss.com.au is the Australian version. Of course, we'll put all of these links in the show notes, which you can find at so you want to be a writer.com.au. Now, Book Bliss is basically these really good book deals, particularly on ebooks. So, what you get is you get bargains on ebooks, sneak peeks, special offers, and it just gets um, a, a, you get a daily email on different perks and different deals. Um, and it's free to sign up, and you can get up to 80% off on ebooks as most of the deals on book bliss are under five dollars and having just recently been overseas i really relied on my kindle you know i really relied on reading ebooks because i'm not i didn't want to carry around stuff so this when this was brought to my attention i thought this is so good i could just you know take this to the beach instead of um instead of carting around some books so check it out it's um bookbliss.com.au did you do much reading on the plane al what do you do i did i read uh i read three full novels while i was away really i did oh not on one trip not on one flight no not on one flight i read one each per flight and one in the middle so to speak well not not fully per flight like i had to catch up a little bit the next day and then i you know yeah didn't you watch any movies? Yeah, I watched Wonder Woman. Okay. <laughs> I wasn't overly impressed by my movie selection, I have to say. Like I was a little bit disappointed. I was kind of hoping really? for um well, I was hoping for the new Agatha Christie movie or something, but Oh, but that's only out in the theaters on the 13th of on sometime in mid-November. That's that wouldn't have been well, on the planes already, would it? No, that's what I'm saying. I was disappointed. Right, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I was disappointed. I ended up with Wonder Woman because, but which was a bit fun because I'd been meaning to yes. watch that, so that was okay. But yeah, yes, um, fun. Yes, yes. Anyway, all right. Let's so move speak. on to. Um, I've got a link from Daily Record, and it's called "Best-selling author Ian Rankin predicts death of the crime novel." Mm. Now, mm. Ian Rankin is basically saying that um, in this age where, you know, a lot of stuff happens in the world, uh, there's people want to have more feel-good books as mm. opposed to, you know, uh, the kind of books that are reflecting what's going on in the world, mm. crime. What do you think? Do you think this is true, that this is the, uh, start, the, the death of the crime novel? Well, I don't know about that because I feel like the crime novel is um, is sort of it's always feels a little bit removed from reality. You read that sort of stuff in the safety of your house to kind yes. of experience the fact that it's not you. Do you know what I mean? I think to a degree. Exactly. And also, crime novels are so plot driven, and people who like plot driven books are never going to move away from um, from crime for that reason. Like people who like a story will always stick with a crime novel because you know that you're getting a story. Like it's a, it's going to be a, you know, a step-by-step story. Um, yes. But I have – it's funny because I feel like there should have been a daily record, you know, a year ago um, where it says, you know, best-selling author A.L. Tate predicts um, return of <laughs> Sweet Valley High. Because oh, yes. 
I have off, I have long felt um, in that, you know, with the way the world is and the way teens are and all of that sort of stuff that, that YA was probably due a resurgence of fluff. Yeah. And I, and I call Sweet Valley High fluff because, let's face it, that's what it was mm. and how much did we love it back in the 80s. I love um, Sweet Dreams books. Sweet mm. dreams, exactly. Um, mm. So I wonder, I do wonder if we might see a resurgence, not not exactly Sweet Valley High, but a resurgence of something along those lines in YA because I, do, I honestly feel like YA has been so issue-based. So bleak. Oh, so issue-based. And this is a broad broad brush and, I, you know, if you're a YA author, this is not a – I'm not criticising on any level but I'm just saying as far as a mood goes, mm. there's most definitely a, a wokeness going on, which is great, and also mm. – but also a certain bleakness. And, and yes. um, you know, you read the back of them as an adult and think, God, really? I know. But then, I do. But, I do. But, I don't know. But having said that, we are talking teens and angst is a big thing. Angst is good, mm. you know, for teens. They love a bit of angst. Um, so I get that. But I, I do I do wonder if there's possibly going to be some room somewhere in there for, you know, something along the Sweet Valley High kind of area. Yeah, and escape, yeah, you heard it. Escapism, first. you know, some kind mm. of it. Yeah, I feel like escapism is, is going to be, um, you know, a thing. Again, particularly, I personally think in YA, but that's just me. It may be everywhere. I used to love those sweet, sweet dreams books. Oh, <laughs> I was like, they were, whatever. Do you remember that though? Like they would be, you'd be lining up for them when they came yeah, out. Because they yes. put out for a month or whatever they did. And my yeah. sisters and I had this huge collection of them. Yeah. You know, because we had sweet dreams and then Sweet Valley High. So if we yes. still had that collection, I think we'd be worth a fortune. But we yeah, don't. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. I wonder what it'd be like reading one of those books again today. Oh, they're out there. You still can. Feel free. Yeah, in fact, they may, even, they may even still exist as a as like they might be still bringing out new ones for all I know. Yes. But, um, yes. It's not something I've looked at for We're no longer the target market. <laughs> what? How is this possible? All right, let's move on to you have a link for us from Jane Friedman's site, Al. Oh, I do. And we know, um, so Jane Friedman always writes such incredibly sensible and practical and useful posts. I do love her. Um, Mm. So she's janefriedman.com, J-A-N-E-F-R-I-E-D-M-A-N. And she has written a post about whether or not unpublished writers should have a website. And if they do have a website, what should it say? And so she writes this terrific post, which is basically saying, yes, you do need one. (laughs) Like straight up, Mm. she's very straightforward. Like, yes, you need one. I recommend starting and maintaining an author website, even if you're unpublished. And she goes through all the reasons that we often talk about, you know, the fact that it is your bit of real estate on the internet, the fact that it is a hub for everything that you do, whether it's in real life or in the digital realm, because you can talk about, you know, events and all of that sort of stuff. You fully own and control it. You tell your own story and you connect directly. Directly with media, readers, influencers, etc. So, yep. you know, as far as a long-term investment goes, as far as Jane and I are concerned, it's yep. hard to overstate the importance of it. But then she goes through, because being Jane, she's pretty terrific, um, yep. she goes through exactly what you need on that website. Now, this is stuff that I do talk about as well in my um, in my course, How to Build Your Author Platform. We go through exactly step-by-step step what you need. Um, but this yep. is a terrific introduction here that she has. And she's also um, 
brings up the fact that just that having an author website does not mean that you have to blog. Mm. So, because I think that there's an idea, authors think, oh, if I've got a website, I have to put a blog on it. Um, but in the actual mm. fact, you don't have to blog. You've got to have, you know, like I would be looking very strongly at the pros and cons of blogging and not blogging, um, which, of course, we do talk about in the course as well. Um, but it's, it's um, you know, a, a website doesn't necessarily mean a blog. Um, although, you know, you can also start a blog and not necessarily have to branch straight into a website. So there's, there's two ways of looking at it, but she talks about what you need on your, um, website. If you're an unpublished author, um, you need to have an about page, which of course is very, very important. Your bio, but your bio is so essential. You need a contact page so people can actually get in touch with you. It's amazing how many authors don't have that. Oh uh, you can need a page that details any work that you have done that might be, you know, that's been made public. You need links to your social media profiles and you should consider having an email newsletter sign up. Um, you yeah. can have people sign up for a newsletter even if you don't even have one yet, you know, like yeah, just exactly. start collecting um start collecting email addresses. So um, and then she also has a look at whether or not, you know, what sort of uh, – platform you should use to build your website. She talks uh, about the fact that she really likes WordPress to get started. Um, I also have a WordPress uh, website, but there's a whole range of different options um, of things that you can use. And I, you know, it's worth investigating the different formats and what you can do with them. Um, And But, you know, the first thing that you should do, even if you're not ready to actually put your website up online yet, is to register your domain name first thing. For so sure. get your domain name because, you know, when your book comes out or when your book is coming out, it's too late to register your domain name. Get your domain name yes. now so that you can secure it, if nothing else. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so it's worth having a read of Jane's website. What do you think, Val? Do you, it's, do you feel it's an essential thing for unpublished authors? Yeah, definitely. Just as a calling card or a business card or a presence on the internet, you don't even have to have a lot on it. Like you don't, I think people get um, that, that the obstacle that they think, think that they face is that, oh, I need to write the entire website. Well, the website can just merely be your contact details and some a very brief bio. So you don't have to, as Alison said, you don't need to have an entire blog. You don't need to keep that going. Just make sure that you have a presence there so that people know how how to contact you if they want to, but also mm. not ha- you have a central place to, to direct people to your various social media platforms if you're active on them. I think it's really important. And and I think that Alison has been a master at exactly this, how, at building your author platform and helping other authors build their author platform. And as she mentioned, her course, obviously called How to Build Your Author Platform, is, is a great resource. So make sure you check it out at writerscentre.com dot au slash platform that's right oops sorry. <laughs> i've interrupted your spiel my god sorry that's okay well i was obviously just going to say writercenter.com.au slash platform but you go on what i was going to say is that i think that it's important to remember that it's not set in stone like a a, a website is really organic thing and yeah. mine has changed Mine has changed so many times over the last, like it's been, I've had my website now for about 11, no, how many years? No, nine years, um, coming up to nine years in January. Started as a blog, branched into a website. I've had several design changes. I move things around all the time. I change things. It's not, 
you know, what you start with today. And as Jane says, you know, initially your website's probably going to be pretty ordinary and that's okay. Do you know what I mean? Mm. But you, uh, you just get your skill, you, you practice and you get better and you read your about page like six months down the track and think, gosh, what was I thinking? And rewrite it. So the joy of it is it's not set in stone, but if you get started, at least you've got something to play with. So yeah, anyway, that's, yeah. that's all I had to say about that. Awesome. All right, let's move on to our competition this week. I know this is going to be a super popular one. This is really, really cool. We have two pilot 2018 diaries to give away. These Ooh. are the ones that are just for writers. I love this. I love the pilot diaries that come out every year. Um, this year there's advice, industry advice from Ireland, Griffith Review, Brief, Rabbit, Poetry New Zealand and Lip plus weekly writing tips, prompts and encouragement from Australia and New Zealand's most exciting authors, poets, playwrights, journalists and critics. It's the perfect tool to keep on track with your writing goals. For the practical creative, there are monthly writing exercises, more than 200 writing competitions, festivals and awards, tips on manuscript layout, submission, grammar, punctuation, editing and style, and an A to Z of essential resources for writers. So if you're interested in winning your own copy, then go to writerscentre.com.au slash win and entries close on the 20th of November. So go to writerscentre.com.au slash win so that you can win your diary well in advance of 2018 and kickstart the new year with an awesome way to track where you're going on your writing journey. So mm. now. I want one. Al, you may want one, but I'm going to give you something else right now. <laughs> <laughs> God. Okay. <laughs> Are you ready for the word of the week? No, I'm not ready. Oh, come on. Okay. Just, just give me a moment. Give me a moment. I need to get into the right headspace. Ready? Okay. 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 Have you I'm so ready now. Okay. Awesome. I'm so glad you said that. Um, have you used this word much? Limerence. That's L-I-M-E-R-E. E-N-C-E, limerence. Do you know what? I remember I remember this word coming up some, like this is one of those things that you remember, like it came up somewhere in like my high school life. Limerence really? was one. Yeah, I, it's, I think it was one of those words that must, we must have discussed it in class endlessly or something like that. I've never mm. used it um, outside of the, whatever the context of that discussion was, but okay. it, it is a word that I am familiar with. Okay, well, in case what you don't know, yes, in case listeners don't know, according to the Macquarie Dictionary, this is a psychological state characterised by deep infatuation, usually experienced in the early stages of falling in love. So it would be safe to say, even though Sally knew Harry for years, it wasn't until later in life that she was struck with an overwhelming sense of limerence. Or you might even say, when I first set eyes on Joel Edgerton, I was overcome with limerence. Are you serious? Yeah. Don't Joel you like Edgerton. him? He's all right. I don't have any limerence going on there, but righto. Uh, I, I wonder have if limerence. you were going to say John Bon Jovi right there. Well, yes, of course, but that was like so obvious. Oh, That's too stuck. obvious. Okay. Yeah, I mean – 
I, there's, that's more than just limerence, I tell you. Oh, that's deep love. Sorry. <laughs> and other things. And but, other things. <laughs> <laughs> so, other yeah, things yeah, that would get us an explicit rating. Right. <laughs> Joel Edgerton, yeah, he's my thing. Anyway. Is he? Uh, yeah, it's How funny. did I not know this? How have I known you all these years and I had no idea you had a thing for Joel Edgerton? Oh, yeah, a thing. And um, I got to interview him once when he played Uncle Owen in Star Wars. And so I was like. Yourself? Um, oh, no, I'm really quite good with when I meet my heroes to remain professional. I'm quite proud of myself um, right. that I managed to hold it together. So I did hold it together very, very well. Mm. Mm. Uh, he he never knew, although he probably he might know now if he listens to. Did you get a selfie and a photo signed and stuff? Like, did you? No, because that's a thing. It was kind of like it. You you do that more these days, but you know how when you are a journo and you're in that situation, you don't want to waste yourself. Like you think you 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 want to you're too cool for school kind of thing, and you don't want to appear uh, like an adoring fan. So no. I have never ever done that, with the exception of, of course, the love of my life, John Bon Jovi, because at that point I didn't care what anyone thought of me I had to get the photo but I have never done that with anyone else even though I've interviewed you know all these major people you just feel like you you're it's too uncool to do that when you're a journo <laughs> I would probably it pro- okay. probably different now see wasted opportunity right there because you were so busy trying to be cool that's right you didn't get to I indulge know. your limerence I know, I know, but hopefully I'll get to meet him again. Anyway, let's move on to our writer in residence this week. Oh, let's. We're, we're talking to Lexi Lansman, and she is an awesome Australian author and a television producer and a journalist. Now, she her debut novel was released last year, The Ties That Bind, and now she's released her second book, which I'm sure is going to be just as successful, called The Perfect Couple. Mm-hmm. So um, let's have a chat to Lexi and she can tell us more all about it. Okay. Thanks so much for joining us today, Lexi. Thank you, Valerie. Now, this is very exciting. You have released The Perfect Couple, which is your second book. Um, Your first novel, The Ties That Find, was released in 2016. Now, for those readers who haven't got their hands on your book yet, just tell us what it's about. So The Perfect Couple is very different to my first book in that my first book was a family drama and this book is psychological suspense or domestic noir, which is the new buzzword. Um, And it follows a married couple, Sarah and Marco Moretti, um, who to their friends and colleagues seem like the perfect couple. And together they've travelled the globe building, you know, their careers as archaeologists. And they're currently on a dig in Florence um, searching for the world-famous San Gennaro necklace, um, which is a priceless antiquity that Marco's devoted the last decade of his career to finding. Um, And on the night that they do uncover it, Sarah drives home and is in a car accident. And she wakes up the next morning with no memory of the preceding 48 hours, um, which includes finding the necklace and witnessing her husband's infidelity um, and things go from there. That's just such an awesome hook, isn't it? And, (laughs) I mean, did you – 
did, how did that form in your brain? Did that all come to you in a bolt of lightning or, or were you searching for some kind of really compelling premise um, to, to, to go into this book? It's always funny when, when people ask me that question because it's hard to find the beginning of an idea because mm. it, it really evolved and it was quite an organic process. Um, but if I was to kind of think about like the main factors that, that came together with this idea, it would, the first one would be um, memory loss. I was always interested um, in this idea of memory loss, in uh, acute episode of memory loss that was short-term but had devastating consequences. And I think that stems from I studied um, psychology at university. So I've always been fascinated in memory disorders. Um, and that fascination grew actually in quite unfortunate circumstances when um, my father had meningococcal disease. Mm. Um which was really terrifying and he nearly lost his life and he was in a coma for 10 days. Um, and when he woke up um, and miraculously survived the disease, um, I walked into the room and he looked at the nurse and said, who is she? Um, so thank God it was just short-lived and it was the sedatives. But at the time, you know, we'd gone through this trauma of not knowing if my father would live and then he woke up and had no memory. So this idea of what are we without our memory really kind of stayed with me um, because we really are, when you think about it quite deeply, we, we are what we remember, you know, and mm. our loved ones um, are so important because we have a lifetime of memories with them. And if you don't have those memories, do you still have the love? So that was the, where the idea of memory came from. Um, and then the idea of an abduction for ransom actually arose um, from the true story of a relative of mine, my grandmother's <laughs> sister-in-law, um, who um, very terrified. You've got a dramatic family. I know. It does sound like it, doesn't it? Um, yeah, we've, we've had our, our fair share of dramatic incidents. Um, but this one occurred before I was born um, in 1982, and my grandmother's sister-in-law was abducted and held for ransom. Um, her, her husband was a prominent jeweller, um, and she was taken to a caravan park and tied up. Um, and over 18 hours, she was she endured um, psychological torment um, and abuse. And she happened to be a psychologist. And she managed to talk her abductor into freeing her, um, which is quite an amazing thing to the point yeah. that at the end of, by the time he freed her, he was apologizing for what he'd done. Um, so the idea for me of, that dynamic between captor and victim um, was something I've, I've thought about many times over the years. So when it came time to writing my second book, I put those two together, um, that story, memory loss, and also a, a longstanding interest I'd had in archaeology. Mm. And then the book somehow came together from those um, pieces. Did you make a conscious decision to write the into the domestic noir genre? No, um, I didn't. In fact, I didn't even know I was writing um, <laughs> under the domestic noir genre. I thought okay. I was writing another family drama. Um, so you can imagine my shock when I handed it over to my publisher and was told, actually, you know, the plot twists you added and the psychological slant actually puts it into the sphere of domestic noir. So that came as quite a shock to myself and my publisher. <laughs> Yeah, right. So tell me a little bit about your background because before you wrote your novels, 
You have had various roles in as a journalist, as a television producer. Maybe just give us a just very quick potted career history and at what point did you think, you know what, I'm going to write fiction? Um, well, I started out when I was at school, I always thought I was going to go into theatre and I wanted to do drama. So I did drama all through school, um, which I think is, I can only see now, um, you know, 15 years later, how that, that drama, um, has come to have a part in my writing because it doing school drama really teaches you to put yourself into a character's headspace. Mm. Um, so when it comes to writing fiction, um, you know, I harnessed all those skills. Um, but I went on to study journalism at university. Um, and I studied at, um, Sydney university and the university of New South Wales. Um, and then I studied abroad at the university of Miami as well. Um, and I had a master. So I, I came back after doing an exchange semester in Miami, uh, finished my undergraduate degree and then had had no idea what I wanted to do um, with my career, as I think many of us do. Um, so I picked this master's course in journalism, which was one year, and one of the subjects, electives, was novel writing um, with Delia Falconer. Yeah. And the prerequisite was to have written 30,000 words of a novel. So I spent the three months before the course started you know, quickly writing um, uh, 30,000 words. And, of course, I was the only one in the class who had actually taken that prerequisite literally. Um, oh. Yes. Yeah, so most people came with 1,000 words or, you know, a chapter. Um, but I guess that taught me discipline and, and deadlines. Yeah. Um, and then I put that – I kept writing that manuscript, um, but I put it aside and I became a journalist. Um, and then through, I kept writing while I was working as a journalist, just on the side. And then after working as a journalist, I got a job at channel seven as a producer. Um, and that was eight years ago. So I've been working in factual programming for channel seven since then. And I work, I work mainly in making documentary television series. Um, so things from border security to um, I just did a show now on um, tow truck drivers on the Sunshine Coast who um, very different. <laughs> yes. Who, who rescue boats um, that have been shipwrecked on islands and B-doubles that have rolled off cliffs. Um, and so things like that to shows like Australia's Deadliest where I interviewed people who survived animal attacks right through to the quirkiest and strangest show I've ever worked on, which was mm -hmm. shot in L.A. and New York, which was called World's Richest Dogs. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love yeah. it. Okay. So you have that – so that's your day job and you you write in after hours. With, is that right? That's right. So with that first book I mentioned, I actually put that aside and that book never got published. And it was only after that manuscript, which was a really good training ground. Um, and I'm actually really glad that that manuscript never got published because um, I thought it was ready. But really what it did was teach me how to write and how to structure a novel. And my second manuscript was the one that then became The Ties That Bind. Um, so, yeah, I've done the writing on the side um, and, and worked full time. Um, but with my second book, The Perfect Couple, I actually only had nine months to write it. So I wrote the book in my third trimester of my pregnancy. Wow. Um, 
which in which at which time I was on maternity leave and um, straight after I had the baby, so with a newborn. So that was right. a whole different challenge to to writing while working full time. Yeah, absolutely. So when you were working full time, let's just take both of them because I think they're both interesting scenarios because a lot of people say, I don't have time to write and I need to wait till I'm on long service leave or I don't have time because I have a full-time job. So let's take both those scenarios. With the first one where you were working full-time, where did you fit it in? Did you dedicate, did you carve out specific, you know, chunks of time in order to make it happen? Did you just write it here and there? How did you actually make you make yourself have the structure and discipline to make X number of words come out? Look, structure and discipline when it comes to writing a book are really challenging and I don't think there's any perfect, you know, formula with how to stay motivated because I definitely mm-hmm. found your motivation, you know, it goes up and down um, and, it, and it comes in waves. For me, when I was writing um, my first book, The Ties That Bind, that book took me five years working full-time while working full-time and I would write every weekend whenever I had a spare moment um, and most evenings. But then sometimes, you know, life gets busy, things happen, and I would put it aside for three months, for instance, yeah. um, or I'd hit a hole in the plot that I just couldn't um, think of a way out of. And again, I'd put it down and I'd come back to it when I felt refreshed. Um, but my favorite times for writing was actually whenever I traveled. Um, mm. I would find as soon as I kind of got away from Sydney and it got away from, you know, the, the frantic pace of living a city life, um, I would always feel the most inspired and the most creative. Um, so that's what I would always look forward to was, was writing over, you know, when I was traveling, um, and then just, finding those hours in the evening and on the weekend. So when you wrote The Ties That Bind over five years, tell us about your break. How did you then get uh, it published, get, get someone interested in it? What was that process? So I had um, I had a literary agent um, and she'd, um, she had pitched my first manuscript, the one I, that I mentioned never got published when I was. But how did you get her? Take a step back. How did you get your literary agent then? So getting a literary agent I found was a bit like getting published, um, (laughs) because it's just as challenging. You have to find someone who believes in you, um, and who will take you on. Um, because a lot of literary agents, particularly the smaller ones, they've got, you know, a small pool of authors and they want to have enough time to commit to each author. So they're very selective. So I sent out a pitch letter to a range of literary agents, um, and then would wait for their reply. And most of them would say, okay, send us the first 50 pages or send us the first three chapters, which I did. Um, And then, of course, you get as many rejection letters back, which can be quite heartbreaking. Um, And then I was very fortunate that my current literary agent took me on and and believed in me. Wow. All right, so she she took it to various publishers. And tell me about the – the moment, if you can remember it, when you knew you got a deal? I remember it very vividly. It'll stay with me for a long time. Um, I was at work at Channel 7 um, and I got a voicemail from my agent to say, and I could hear the kind of shake in her voice and the tremor saying, Lexi, can you call me really quickly? Um, (laughs) And, you know, that feeling your heart just starts racing. Um, it was very out of character for her to leave a voicemail like that. Yeah. Um, 
and it happened to be um, my late grandmother's birthday. Um, and my late grandmother was a really big supporter of my writing. She, she fostered my love of storytelling um, and she was a big influence on my life. And she, I actually dedicated that book to her um, before she passed away. Um, so I thought the timing was really weird. And so she called me and she said, um, Penguin Random House um, have offered you a two book deal. <laughs> and I literally ran into the corridors screaming at Channel 7 oh. and people were looking at me like I was crazy and I just turned <laughs> to complete strangers and said, I just got a book deal. Oh, <laughs> so wow. It was a very happy moment. That's fantastic. And so let's go to The Perfect Couple. You're writing it in your last trimester. Were you working at this point? Yes. Yeah, so by that point I was working part-time. So I was working okay. about three days a week um, right. and just finishing off a show before I went on maternity leave. Okay. So with The Perfect Couple, which is a psychological suspense, you need to make sure that you um, have various plot um, plot points and and points that are going to make it interesting and compelling for the reader to want to turn the page and to, you need to make sure that your pacing is right so that the reader is following on just at the, at the right pace so that they um, are turning the page at the right points. What? Um, how did you determine, first of all, the plot points of the story? Were they already mapped out so you knew what was going to happen? And then secondly, where they were going to go, as in the pacing for it. Do you know what I mean? Like uh, how much time you're going to spend on each section or scene? Yeah, so with this book, because I only had nine months, I actually plotted out the whole book. So I wrote a chapter-by-chapter summary. Um, So I knew exactly – I didn't know the content of what would happen in each chapter, Mm. but I knew plot-wise where I had to get to. Um, And with this book as well, it's written from four perspectives. Um, So it's written from the point of view of Sarah and Marco and their two children, Emily and Daniel, and it plays with this idea of an unreliable narrator. Now the tricky thing with writing from different perspectives is that each character knows information that other characters don't know. Um, So that came to have a big um, part in how I paced the story because I would try and leave each chapter on a note where that character was about to find out something crucial and then you switched into the other character's perspective and they're at a different point and there's something and then I try and leave their chapter with their journey and and something else crucial that they're about to stumble across. So it's kind of about balancing the timing of of those four perspectives and making sure that there's enough happening in each character's life um, Mm. parallel to each other to keep the story moving. But certainly the editing process um, is where that timing um, really becomes important. So there was a lot of cutting out, um, I'd, I'd say a lot of culling when it came to, to editing the manuscript in order to keep the momentum going. If you were able to um, do a chapter-by-chapter chapter breakdown so you had the whole thing plotted out, uh, which many people don't do, but, um, if, but you know, some people do do to, to great success, but if you were able to do that right at the beginning, do you back yourself and trust yourself that, yeah, I know that this arc is going to work or do you show people? Um, I think I didn't have the opportunity to show people because I didn't have the time. Um, mm-hmm. 
with my first book, I had the time and I had some friends read it and, and family members read it and I got feedback. But with this book, I just had to trust that I knew where it was going um, because I feel like if you stop and you doubt yourself, it's very mm. easy to firstly lose momentum but also to kind of spiral and, and stop writing. So you, you have to keep going. Um, if ever I got to points where I wasn't sure if it was working, um, I would speak to the publisher or my agent um, mm. or strangely my mother-in-law um, <laughs> who, who is a big reader um, and I would talk out the, the elements of the plot. But one of the biggest twists in the plot actually came during the writing. So it was something I hadn't planned for. Yes. And so did take me through your typical writing day when you were writing this book. If you already had it plotted out, did you go, okay, well, I'm going to write X number of words today and you just sort of kind of follow along the process or did you in, in a linear fashion or did you do some other kind of approach? Like how did you structure yourself so you knew you were going to get it all done in that time frame? Yeah, so um, I, I just have to take a step back before I answer that and, and that's because I did get to a point with the second book where I thought I was never going to finish it in time um, mm. and I was actually at a writer's event and I met um, an author called Meredith Jaff. And I told her, I said, I don't think the book's going to be finished. And I've just, in my head, I've just written it off and I'll have to submit it, you know, in a year's time. And she pretty much gave me a lecture in 15 minutes <laughs> and said to me, the best way to write is to break it down. So she said, you need to set yourself a daily word limit and a weekly word limit and stick to it. She said um, when she got her book deal, she got, a two, um, I think, a two or three book deal. Um, but the book that she got the deal with, they decided to publish second. And so she had to go and write her first book, which became The Fence. Um, so she was waking up at 4 a.m. in the morning to write chapters. And she said that's just what she had to do. She woke wow. up at every 4 a.m. and she'd write till about 8 a.m. So I thought if she could do that, um, I can do this. So I, I set myself the goal of doing 1,200 words a day and wow. I did that before I had the baby. Um, when I had the baby, I took six weeks off. I didn't touch the manuscript mm. um, and then I tried to do the same thing. So I tried again to do 1,200 words a day, which would be squeezed in between feeds, sometimes between 2 a.m. and 4 a.m., um, mm. sometimes I would write while he was asleep on my lap. Um, in mm. fact, that was often the case. Um, so I ended up having to be quite creative, not in what I wrote, but in when and how I wrote. Mm. Some people, you know, vomit out a first version and don't kind of want to get bogged down in any editing or reviewing. Uh, what do you do? Do you, um, go back and, 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 and tweak your words before you move on to the next 1200 or do you just let it go and just keep on plowing through? I would always read the chapter I'd written, the, the, the previous chapter, and then continue because I would find it would give me momentum um, and then I would finesse and edit that previous chapter and then go on to the next one. Um, so at least then you're kind of editing as you're going along in small chunks rather than, um, you know, tackling the whole manuscript as a whole, which of course you do later on in the process. Mm. Um, but while I was writing, that was the best way that worked for me. When you uh, are writing from different characters' points of view and they know different things at different times, how did you keep track of that? Did it just come naturally to you or do you did each character have like a dossier or 
How did you keep track of what they knew and what they're supposed to know and remember and not remember and and stuff? Um, I didn't have a fancy method, which in hindsight I probably should have. I probably should have had those dossiers. Um, I just seemed to know um, what each character knew and didn't know because I guess each time I sat down to write I would put myself in the character's shoes, which I guess is where those those old drama skills come into, um, and try and only see the world through their eyes. So I seem to have a good sense of who knew what. Um, and then, of course, when I was editing, that's when I really had to go back and make sure I hadn't made any mistakes. Yes. And so what do you find the most challenging thing about the writing process for you? Um, for me, I guess having a deadline changes the way you write I didn't have a deadline for my first book because you know I only got the publishing deal when it was finished yeah um so with the second book because I knew I had nine months from from start to finish um it means that you have to write when you're not necessarily feeling inspired or when you're not necessarily feeling creative um which and it meant I would have to write I'd go okay well I've got to write between this hour and this hour and you you have to sit down at your computer and just go because I didn't have the time to to write later particularly you know once the baby came they're so demanding um that you can't write when they're asleep because they're often waking up a few hours later so yes um, that was for me the hardest part was trying to keep to a deadline and and trying to be so regimented with writing a certain amount of words a day um, yes. and then it's also, it can be quite a lonely and, and isolating experience when you're writing because you can't share it with other people, um, mm-hmm. unless you have very kind people who are generous with their time and don't mind hearing you discuss what characters are going to say next. Um, <laughs> it can be, it can be quite isolating. So, and, and also to have your loved ones, um, around you watching you kind of go through this, um, kind of hermit stage like particularly with my friends you know when they were going out on weekends or in the evenings I was always having to be at home and work so Mm. you you do have to make a lot of sacrifices to commit to doing something when you when you have other things in your life like a job or or children Mm. I think for writers who do it full-time at least you know they might work nine to five and then have a normal life yes yes you have to be committed don't you so when you uh, do have a deadline and you do have the pressure and um, requirement really to write a certain number of words a day in order to to get to your 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 deadline I do understand of course that that makes a difference to the creative process and how you feel I'm curious to know whether you think that it makes a difference to the quality of the output uh, when you yeah. have to do it as yeah. opposed to wait for inspiration here yeah, look, I hope not. I really hope not because um, one of the positives, I suppose, of having a deadline is you get it done. You know, yeah. I feel like if I didn't have a deadline, um, this book may have taken me five years to write. Um, so <laughs> one of the good things is that you're in the zone for a short period of time. And so you're you're really living in that world where I guess if it was spread out over five years, um, you are coming in and out of this fictional world that you create. Um, so I hope the output isn't, um, you know, flawed. Um, but I do always wonder how authors manage to do a book a year. I think it's, um, you know, I've only done two books in a row, but you know, there's authors out there who do a book every year and have done so for the last 10 years. Um, and I have huge admiration for them because, um, 
it's not easy having to be creative when someone says, ready, set, go. <laughs> yes, so, that's right. Yeah. So what's next for you? What are you working on? Um, so at the moment I'm back, I'm back at Channel 7 after being on maternity leave. Um, so I'm throwing myself into my television work for the time being. Um, I have some ideas for a third book that are bubbling away. Um, Will it I- be domestic noir? That's a great question. I thought I was writing a family drama for my second book and if I think I'm writing a domestic noir for my third, maybe I'll surprise myself again. It'll end up being sci-fi or something. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, something completely different. No, I I think definitely I'll stay within the genre um, because the more and more I research about it, um, the more I'm drawn to it and it seems the more books I'm reading in that genre. So, um, And the idea I have does fit quite nicely into the genre so that's where I'm leading um and I also might explore doing writing a a drama series which is something I've never done before so you mean for television uh, yeah for television ah right so I'm curious to know though because you a have a background as journalist b currently you do a lot of documentary style series therefore these are all steeped in non-fiction I'm curious to know whether you uh interested in writing non-fiction um at this stage um no I I find I enjoyed working in in non-fiction in my day-to-day life but in terms of creative writing I prefer you know your imagination has no limit um whereas facts have um can be very limiting so I prefer getting lost I prefer the escapism of writing fiction um but I do do bits and pieces like I'm writing a chapter now for a book um on um two women who climbed um the seven summits um as the first mother-daughter team so I do do bits of pieces of non-fiction but I think in terms of a a full-length book um for now I'm going to stick to to fiction so you, in this kind of world, uh, in um, The Perfect Couple, you have created, you know, you're in exotic locations. They're archaeologists. They're in Florence, you know. There's all sorts of um, – there, there's a world you have to create that is a far cry from Sydney <laughs> where, <laughs> or, where, or any Australian city um, where you live. Uh, when you are writing the book, is that wor- world – does that occupy your brain 24-7 or are you quite easily compartmentalising, you know, I'm doing this now and then I'm doing this now? How, how, how much does it seep into your psyche? Um, that is a great question. I think um, for me I, I had to learn to switch in and out of it, but certainly when you start to dream what you're writing, <laughs> you know, you know that it has seeped into your psyche quite heavily. And I was often dreaming about elements of my book, dreaming mm. that I was in Lake Como or Florence, <laughs> for one, because um, I was writing in the cold winter uh, in in Sydney and writing about yeah. the warm European summer um, in wow. Italy. <laughs> Were yeah. you dreaming as Sarah, the main character, or as a, a observer watching it unfold like a movie? I was an omniscient narrator when I was right. dreaming, so I was um, I was kind of watching from afar. So there would just be little moments and things that would come up, um, and I always find that interesting. This idea of you know that we can dream often so vividly, and you can mm. see people and characters and what they're wearing and how they talk and how they walk. But sometimes when you sit down to write something on the page. Um, 
you think, oh, what are they wearing and, and how, does, how do they speak? And it, you have to really harness that creativity, which I find comes so naturally to us when we dream. So it's quite an interesting um, realm when you think about it. That's bizarre, isn't it? Dreaming. Yeah. Uh, there's a, do you wake up tired? Do you remember your dreams? Or do you like get your notepad out and start frantically writing down what you dreamt so in case it's useful? To catch it, yeah. I would sometimes just um, take out my iPhone and quickly write in notes a few impressions that I'd had. Um, <laughs> and because if you don't, I find it just, you know, they disappear once you're you're fully awake. So I would do that quite a bit. But I, I chose um, Italy because I, I was writing about archaeology. So the location of where the book was set was really dependent upon the research that I did. Um, and, and when I decided to base it around this antiquity, um, the San Gennaro necklace, which is a real piece um, of jewellery that exists in real life um, right. that I fictionalised to have, to have disappeared, um, I decided that that Italy would be the best place based on all the research that I had done. Um, and unfortunately, I wasn't able to travel to Italy because I was in my third trimester. Um, <laughs> so I had to let my imagination travel for me. Um, so I do a lot of online research. But one of the things I actually used was um, Google Maps. There's a feature yeah. in Google Maps where you can put yourself into the street and you get a 360 degree view. Have you done that before? No, I haven't. I've seen but, it, you know, like I've done street view, but it's, that's quite clunky. Yeah. It's a bit like street view. So you kind of, you, you, there's a little figure at the bottom and you plop them down and you can basically see the streets in front of you and you can navigate mm -hmm. down the street. So I did that quite a lot to see exactly where my characters were going. So when they were going through different piazzas and over the Ponte Vecchio, um, yes. you can see, oh, there's actually, you know, tiny details, things like whether there were parked cars or whether they were mm. parking only for motorcycles and whether there were leather salesmen. Um, so those tiny <laughs> little details. Um, and then that actually became a plot device in my book, um, something uh, that detectives use later on. So, um, yeah, it's quite interesting so where, cool. <laughs> where technology <laughs> can take you. Now, finally, what's your advice for aspiring writers who, you know, they haven't had that phone call from their agent yet or, you know, from whoever, um, like you did when you were at work at Channel 7, ran into the corridor and screamed. <laughs> uh, for people who haven't yet got to that that wonderful experience, what would your advice to them be to, if they're hoping to be where you are one day? My advice is don't give up. It is it is incredibly challenging. And there's so, even when you're published, there's, there's lows, you know. There's a lot of times where you feel like there's no point in this. I'm never going to get published. Why am I writing? I'm not going to submit it to another agent or to another publisher. But my advice is just to keep going, to be persistent, um, to join a writer's group if you can, um, and to just keep wanting to improve. So do as many writers courses as you can, um, meet as many like-minded people as you can, and just to know that you're not alone. Um, there were many times where I got rejection letters from agents and from publishers where I thought my writing's no good. Um, I'm never going to get published. I've spent five years for nothing. Um, but we write because we love it and we write because it's a passion. Um, and even though the goal is to get published, it's not the only, the be all and end all. We grow a lot through what we write and how we write and how we improve. So yeah, my advice would definitely be don't give up. You know, if you, if you have a will and a motivation and a desire to continue to improve and to learn, 
um, you certainly stand a chance. Love it. Very inspiring. And thank you so much for your time today, Lexi. Thank you so much, Valerie. It was lovely chatting to you. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. Our hugely popular course, How to Write About Murder, is all about creating more authentic action for your crime or thriller novel. Presented by award-winning crime author Candace Fox, this course covers nine modules of fascinating detail, taking you beyond the police tape to explore what motivates killers and how they go about their business. You'll also immerse yourself in the chase, from the murder scene and autopsy to the investigation that follows. Plus, because it's one of our on-demand courses, you'll get instant access and learn at your own pace with 12 months access to all course materials. You can find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash murder course. There you go, Lexi Landsman. Great interview, Val, as Thank always. You. Well, you know, it's always great fun talking to writers about their craft and getting a sneak peek into books often before they come out. I love it when I get an arc. Don't you love it when you get an arc? Mm, I do love an arc. I have to yeah. say I do. But I just love it. You like because you know Book Boy, my son mm. gets he gets truckloads of of books, you know, for review and stuff like that. It's fascinating seeing, as you say, what's coming up and who's doing what and no, I really enjoy it. And then you get to say I read it first. It occurred to me we should mention in case there's um, some people who don't know what an ARC is, it's an advanced reading copy of the book. So it's like a uncorrected proof of the book, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. And sometimes they come in the form of an actual book, but there's big words emblazoned on the cover saying not for sale, you know, uncorrected proof or whatever. Um, but sometimes I've received, you know, the ones that are just paper because they haven't even been printed into a book yet. They're just they're – just, printed out mm. they've just printed out the book yeah and um and I remember I've, I'm in cafes sometimes and it's big writing on the front of this um plastic just ring bound thing saying confidential for Valerie Coo's eyes only or whatever and the people in the cafe are trying to read like they think I'm from NASA or yeah from well, CIA you, or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah I remember when we um you know when I used to work in offices on magazines and stuff and you'd get those first you know you get the pages in and it, they were yeah. literally they weren't even bound in those no. days just this massive stack of paper with mm. a um with an elastic band around it, you know, to hold mm. it all together. So mm. it's not like you can read it on the bus. Like mm. it's kind of, you're fairly limited as to where you can read your book when you get something like that. Yeah, yeah. All right, so what are you doing this coming week, Al? Uh, I, look, I've got a lot of, uh, because you know, I don't know, how is it that four days out of your office, you know, equates to four weeks extra work? I don't quite yeah. know how that works. But Weird, right? I Well, I'm writing a lot of guest posts and I'm writing a lot of stuff for um, for the Book of Secrets. Um, yes. So I'm, you know, with the lead up to Christmas and stuff like that, I've decided that I am going to take the reins and I am, mm. um, you know, rolling out my own promotion and publicity schedule because – that's what you need to do basically so I'm just you know I've got a lot of uh, I've got a lot of work to do with regards to that and I'm also trying to write a new book which is just proving not very easy right now but you know I'm gonna persist we'll be good yeah 
Well, what about you? you What are you doing? What am I doing? Um, Well, tonight I've got an Ask Me Anything Facebook Live with the members of the Freelance Writing Masterclass Program at the Australian Writers' Centre. Tomorrow I'll be doing a bunch of filming, some new modules that we're rolling out in some of our courses. And I'm doing – I'm trying to get stuck back into my artwork because – Oh, yes. um, Yes, I've got a bunch of commissions lined up, so I need to really get uh, get into them um, because I want to deliver them before. Christmas for sure Mm. and you know just stuff but um probably time for us to wrap up where where do we find you online Al? Uh, you'll find me at my website, alisontait.com, A-L-L-I-S-O-N-T-A-I-T.com. You'll find me on Twitter at, at Al Tate, A-L-T-A-I-T. And you'll find me on Facebook and Instagram at Alison Tate Writer. And you, Val, where do we find you? You'll find me at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O, on Twitter and Instagram. And, of course, make sure you connect with us in the podcast community. Just search for So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community on Facebook and we'd love to have you. And remember, all the show notes are at soyouwantobearwriter.com.au. Thank you so much for listening, everyone, and we look forward to chatting to you again next time. Bye. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writercentre.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentre.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more.